Welcome to the River of Suck, episode 8. We've got a very special guest today, Donica Lombardazzi. I've just been informed that the number 8 is her favorite number. So let's start with that. Why is 8 your lucky number? I'm not entirely sure, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) Just was my, uh, you know, when I played field hockey when I was growing up, it was always my jersey number, and I just, I I like the roundness of the 8. Two circles. Oh, yeah. Sitting atop of each other. Infinity just... Yes, infinity, you know. Slightly offset by 90 degrees. Yeah. Infinity rotated. Lucky number seven plus one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I just didn't want to be the lucky number seven person. (laughs) The lucky number eight person. Nice. Well, we've brought you here today to the River of Suck podcast because you're a scientist and we believe in science here. We want to know how science works and more importantly, you're not just any scientist. You are a... Well, I call myself a lot of times a global change ecologist. Ah! I go by many names. Biogeochemist, plant physiologist. Global change ecology captures, I feel like, a lot of those things. Cool. And you work at NCAR. I just think it's so cool that right down the road, we can see the labs where people like you are just working really hard all day long, every day, to solve the world's problems. (laughs) (laughs) What is NCAR? What are you guys doing? NCAR is the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So it's a a research facility where we're really trying to understand all sorts of different aspects Mm -hmm. of research. And NCAR has many different laboratories. The laboratory that I work in is called the Climate and Global Dynamics Laboratory. And so a lot of what we do in the Climate and Global Dynamics Laboratory is try and understand how the full Earth system works. And so trying to understand how terrestrial ecosystems might impact the atmosphere, which might impact Hmm. the oceans, which might impact the amount of ice that we have on land. So there's all these interconnected parts that work together. And our section is primarily responsible for creating a model of the Earth system so that we can better understand how the Earth system works and how it has changed in the past and how it might change in the future. That sounds important. Why are you here in Boulder and not in Washington? Well, I <laughs> I don't know if I know the exact answer to that, but I know that we're in Boulder, and I know that we're on Table Mesa, and I know that IM Pay designed our building. And IM Pay just died this year, so they... The architect? Our, yes, the architect. Yeah. And so our building is kind of cool because it kind of looks like a pink castle that's up on the hill. And it, right. when I.M. Pei was designing our building, he actually camped out on Table Mesa, which I find is a funny name. <laughs> Mesa, <laughs> table Mesa, which Mesa means table in Spanish. So right. table, table. <laughs> but um, he camped out on Table Mesa. And then he also visited southwestern Colorado and he went down to... Chaco Canyon. And he also went to Mesa Verde. And so he was kind of inspired by Mesa Verde and he was inspired by camping out on Table Mesa Mm -hmm. and inspired by the Flatirons. And so he was trying to design a building that looked very research oriented, but also like an impressive place to go visit, but not so over the top that serious scientific work couldn't be done. So it was trying to capture all of these different design pieces in a building. And I think he did a pretty good job when you walk into this pink castle on the hill. There's huge floor-to-ceiling windows where you can look back into the hills. I also love that we have hiking trails right from NCAR. It brings a lot of people up to our facility. And 
they'll oftentimes come inside to use the bathrooms or to fill up their water bottle, and they get to learn a little bit about climate science. And then they find out that you have a little museum. Yes. And we get to learn stuff. Yes, exactly. Which is really, <laughs> I think it's a really special part about the building and about where we work and how we get to interact with people. In fact, right. NCAR has the first permanent climate exhibit in the U.S., possibly in the world. Here at the River of Suck, we like to talk about being the youest you that you can be. With such a specified job, you must have figured out who you were and what you were interested to get where you're at. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you went from Donica of the past to the Donica of now, who's really, really excited and knowledgeable and involved in this whole climate science business. Sure. I have always loved being outside and I've always had <laughs> sort of a greater good mentality, you know, trying to, I think people are really important. I think our planet is really important. And I yeah. think I always have, I have these memories of digging in the garden in my house when I was a kid and <laughs> finding the worms and the grubs and just being really excited to be the kid finding the worms and the grubs and <laughs> just loving it and having my, my dad sing the, Nobody likes me, everybody hates me song. <laughs> yeah. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. <laughs> so that, you know, that brings back a lot of good childhood memories, but I've I've always been She's like, what's wrong with worms? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I guess they're for the fish <laughs> eating them. I've just always really loved being outside and I care what our world is like and I have a lot of compassion for living things. And so that, to me, is part of the reason why I wanted to do this kind of thing. I knew that I wanted to understand our Earth and how it works. You know, I've always just wanted to be outside. I thought I wanted to do field work, and I really love doing field work. It can be miserable at some points in time doing <laughs> field work, but I also love it. And now I do a lot of modeling, and that's because it's really hard to do field work on global scales. Science modeling, not like... Pictures yes, modeling. No, not pictures modeling. Yeah. I'm just sorry. <laughs> Computer modeling. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I am not a model. Um, I'm a modeler. Yes. <laughs> that is a funny distinction. But yeah, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how our earth works and how we can represent that. There's a lot of reasons why we use models rather than measurements. Measurements mm. are really, really important for informing models. And so we need them because we need to understand how the earth works before we can mathematically represent them. Sure. But it's really hard to measure things globally. And so in that context, we can have computer models that can help us to take something like the amount of carbon that a leaf is taking out of the atmosphere and scale that so that we know how much carbon plants are taking up on our planet globally. And that's a really useful aspect of our models and why we use them. Another thing that is really another aspect that is really interesting and that I think is just really so useful is that we can make changes in our model and try and understand how our earth might respond in a way that we don't want to do probably in reality, although we are doing a big <laughs> experiment, a big global change experiment. Sure. 
but we can do other experiments to test other things and we can sort of disentangle what's happening in ways that it's really hard to do from observations and from fieldwork. But like I said, we absolutely need both. We need the observations because otherwise right. we have no idea what's happening. We can't measure anything and we're just guessing. But we also need these models to be able to understand what's going to happen in the future. How do these processes work on a global scale and, and what is the impact? I asked you how you got here and <laughs> I'm, I guess I didn't totally answer that yet, huh? Well, not quite, but that's okay. But you're, you're so passionate about this stuff. It's amazing. Was there ever a time when you weren't sure that this is what you wanted to do or yeah. that you, <laughs> you had self doubt that you could do it? I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And yes, all of those <laughs> things. I was born in Texas and lived there until I was six, and then we moved to Pennsylvania, and I moved to a town called Easton, Pennsylvania, which is only an hour away from New York City, and I okay. remember my mom telling me there's a lot of homeless people in New York City, and I wanted to go take blankets to all of the homeless people. I really... <laughs> and So I'm not entirely sure why I didn't go in sort of a social sciences direction to help people in that capacity. I I just don't know. That's why I say I feel like I've always been very compassionate about people. So I'm trying right. to make our world a better place to live. And so at this point, I'm doing that from trying to understand Earth's ecosystems. Right. And how, because they sustain our life. Without Earth's ecosystems, we would not be alive. And so for <laughs> me, that's the direction that I ended up taking. And I think it was sort of fortuitous that I ended up there for a lot of different reasons. But there were absolutely times that I did not know what I was doing or if anything that I was doing was ever going to matter. <laughs> I remember taking biology when I was in high school and I was thinking about which chemistry class I wanted to take the next year. My biology teacher told me that maybe the chemistry class would be too hard for me. So maybe I shouldn't take it. And w was but, that but, a male or a female? It was, teacher? A, it was a male teacher who was retiring and I learned maybe a few days later that he didn't even remember my name. And so if he couldn't remember my name and didn't really know me, why would he think that I couldn't take the chemistry class? Yeah. And so those kinds of things um, were really hard, and it's really disheartening to have teachers limit you because when somebody says, you're not going to be able to do this, it's hard not to believe them. And so that is a real challenge. I was really lucky when I got to college, my first class I didn't realize it was a chemistry class because <laughs> it was titled The Entropy Crisis. But that professor was a chemistry professor and it was a woman. And she showed up on the first day of class sweaty with her bike helmet and bike shorts on and said, hi, I'm Sally. And I, <laughs> Sal Sally. And we said, what do we call you? She said, call me Sally. You know, <laughs> and I was used to talking to my teachers mm -hmm. as Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. Yeah. So that was surprising to me but also she really made me feel like I could do it and mm -hmm. because it was disguised as not a chemistry class I really did feel like I could do it and I got really excited about that class I went to Colorado College and Sally Meyer was my first professor and she's also the first person who ever took me to NCAR our field trip in that class was coming to NCAR oh wow I had no idea that I would end up working there 
<laughs> you know. So is that like your first job? No. So when I graduated from college, I taught at a school. <laughs> this cat loves you. Yes. It's a really adorable little cat just looking up at me with these big <laughs> yellow green eyes. It's okay. You don't have to make complete sentences when you get the look. <laughs> the cat look. I know. This cat, this cat is really adorable. <laughs> It's Hi, really people. distracting. It is very distracting, but Sorry. that's okay. So you're, you're, where, where were we? Uh, so I did some teaching first. My job was probably the coolest science teaching job that I could ever think of. My title was scientist in residence. Oh man. And so I went to this tiny little school on Long Island, the very eastern end of Long Island. It was called the Hayground School. And the Hayground School was three-year-olds through 14-year-olds. My job was to do science research projects with them. And so I did a range of research projects, things like putting the kids in waders and going to these ponds and collecting bugs from the bottoms of the ponds to see what kinds of bugs were there, and if they were different in freshwater ponds versus brackish, which are mm -hmm. sort of half saltwater, half freshwater ponds. And of course, we saw differences in the bug communities that were there. So that was fun. We, so we did everything from that to making biodiesel in the science lab because the kids were really excited about the new diesel lawnmower that they got, and they wanted to use, make and use biodiesel to run the lawnmower. So that was... Sound like good kids. Yeah, it was such a fun program to be able to teach kids about science through doing science. And so what I realized while I was there, though, is that I really liked doing the science. I wanted to know more. And so that's why I decided to go back to grad school. But then you ended up back here in Colorado, yes. beautiful in-car, where you still get to have elements of teaching while still being very research-oriented. Yeah. And I, I mean... I really do enjoy getting to work with students. I like the teaching aspects of it, but I don't have to design courses or curriculum in the same context that a, a university professor would have to do. So I get to focus on research a lot, but I also get to focus on training students and how to use the tools that we're developing and creating. So this is an analogy here at the River of Suck. Well, this is the River of Suck podcast, so let's talk about the River of Suck. The River of Suck is a mythical river where we are on one side. Behind us is our comfort cave. That's where we do all the things that are easy, things we already know how to do, comfort zone. And on the other side, we can see future versions of ourselves who represent the goals, things we wish we could do now. And those little tiny, hard to see versions of us on the other side, they're, they're like the image of what we wish we could be. All the things that we're not today that we can see in our future. But the problem is in order to get there, there's a bunch of raging whitewater rapids to pass through and rocks and thought piranhas, those negative thoughts that pop into your head. You can't seem to control them. The thought piranhas are actually on the river of suck swim team, which is really cool because they're trying to help us. They're trying to help us be better people. But the problem is sometimes they show up as emotions like fear, self-doubt. That's when I think how we respond to these emotions is really important. You have to suck at something before you can be good at it. And it's that process 
where a lot of people just want to skip to the easy part where they can do it. But if you've never done something before, how are you going to do it great the first time? You have to be doing it badly and then be doing it better. And then the gradual improvement, that's the river of suck. How do you see the river of suck in your life or in your science? Hmm. This is a big question. (laughs) I don't know that I fully know the answer because I don't have an exact end goal, which I think takes some of the pressure off. It doesn't mean that I don't have goals and that I'm not ambitious. It's just I've thought about where I'm going to be in 30 years when I retire. (laughs) I'm still not totally sure. But going back to your analogy, comfort place, you don't have to put yourself out there. From my career perspective, Mm -hmm. sit back. Just do some research. It's the safe research, though. It's the small itty-bitty steps. And it's not making a change. Mm -hmm. And I see what I ultimately want to do as having some impact, being able to make our world a better place. And that, to me, is really where I want to go, what I want to do. It's somewhat intangible, though. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to be. But those thought piranhas that come up are, you're not good enough. People are going to reject you. Yep. They're going to criticize you and tear you down. And that absolutely has happened to me already. Well, and it's super real in this current political climate is that a lot of people just don't even believe that what you're doing is real or that science should be believed. Yep. I... Would love to see a world in the future where we are completely sustainable in terms of our energy use. We don't have to mine things out of the earth anymore. We don't have to mine oil. We don't have to mine metals. We don't have to keep taking things out of the earth to create new things. We can live within our current ecosystem sustainably, I think, That is going to take many, many years, Mm -hmm. and we are moving very slowly. (laughs) Right. And in the process of moving very slowly, other changes are happening to make this problem even worse. And so we're not making it better because we are taking steps to make it better, but the things that are continuing to exacerbate the problem are becoming larger and larger. And so that's a challenge because we don't want those to become larger and we want the things to make it better to grow at a faster rate than those things that are contributing to right the decline when i came to your climate talk at ncar And I asked a question about public perception. I tried to record it and the technology sabotaged me. (laughs) But I asked you, how do you stay positive when there's so much doubt of the research that you're doing kind of in the political world? And everyone laughed (laughs) as if we're like above all of it, but we're really not. Because when you have politicians making decisions that should be made by scientists, it actually is super connected and relevant. So I guess a lot of people right now feel like the heaviness of the world, that we're not doing the right things, we're not moving the right direction. And I guess I'm wondering how you don't get bogged down by those feelings and stay focused. Okay. Well, that's a loaded question with many different facets. There are a couple of couple of things that I can think about here. One is that this problem of climate change is so 
intangible to people, and it seems so big that it is overwhelming. The actions of individuals can help, but we need collective action to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so that seems really overwhelming. We do have a lot of people that are trying to discredit scientists and say that their work is fake or doesn't matter, which is unfortunate because their work is based on fact that is tested and tested in a comprehensive manner. And scientists do make mistakes. They can make mistakes. But for the most part, scientists don't make up data. They can misinterpret what the data are saying. Oh, yeah. By and large, that is not what's happening. And like I was saying, we make a scientific discovery and then other people test the scientific discovery and they test around that scientific discovery to figure out how robust it is. And that is right. how science moves forward. That's, That's the peer review make... process. That's... Yes. Well, the peer review process <laughs> and somebody makes a discovery, we don't always just take that as truth. We say, okay, let's see how this holds up in these other different contexts. And so we test different aspects about it and we do other science that is testing those different things. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we arrive at some of these conclusions where we say, okay, well, this seems pretty robust. It seems like this is happening, you know, and we have multiple scientific publications and a whole body of scientific work that supports these particular hypotheses and these particular mechanisms. And so yeah, it's hard and unfortunate, I guess, when people try to discredit that because it is the process. It's what we're learning. It's how we're doing it. On the flip side, we are making progress. If people feel like there are specific actions that they can take and that they can do that are going to make a difference, that's great. For some of these big things like climate change, mm -hmm. it really does take collective action. But if you think about small things, one thing that I like to think about that happened a lot recently that just seems so successful, straws are ending up in the ocean. Yeah. Plastic straws are bad for the environment. Yeah. All of a sudden... We're using paper straws, reusable straws, metal straws. I mean, straws. it's happening here in Boulder. Is it Absolutely. happening? You can't get straws. I went to Washington, D.C. They had paper straws. You know, it's not just Boulder. Mm -hmm. It's around. It's was, not happening in Montana, I'll tell you that. No. It's not happening everywhere, but it is happening, and we right. are making that change. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, you're seeing it in a lot of places. So those kinds of things are exciting. Think 15 years ago about electric cars. Right. Now it's there's just a dream. Now they're yeah. now they're on the roads. Now they're on the roads. Several of my colleagues at NCAR have Nissan Leafs, mm -hmm. fully electric cars. Tesla made electric cars that are luxury cars. Yeah. You know, we can do it. Volvo has committed to making their entire line electric. We can make these right. changes. We can. We just Oh I didn't know that. Wow. Cool. That's they yeah. they announced that at some point. Okay. In the past probably six months. You should look it up. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe part of it is that you're actually surrounded by like-minded people that are supporting you. <laughs> well, not supporting me necessarily, but we're all trying to do what we can mm -hmm. to make these changes. And it helps when you see other people also making these changes. And I also feel like we are trying to take action. The work that we're doing is to try and make improvements, try and do the science so that we can make improvements, I should say. We're not trying to make, we can't make <laughs> the improvements just ourselves. We're doing the science that can serve as the foundation for making decisions that will improve our world. And so 
scientists need to work with decision makers, managers, policymakers, mm -hmm. so that the policymakers can be informed of the best state of the science to make informed decisions. We're not always getting there. Right. But I was pleasantly surprised when I went to Europe. I was at a meeting and they were telling me about a project that they were working on that was government funded. And they, I said, okay, so you're going to publish these papers. And they said, yes, we're going to write a report that we're going to give to the European Union and they're going to base their policy decisions on that report. And I was astounded because that is not the way that the science has worked in the U.S., at least as far as I have experienced it. I have never received funding or worked on a project that is directly going to go to policymakers that are going to make decisions based on that recommendation. Since it's a global problem, if you can make an impact on a global scale from Colorado, then that feels like we're making progress, even if it's not. Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the individual feels a little bit helpless, but you can make actions. Mm -hmm. You can not use plastic bags, not use plastic straws, drive an electric vehicle, mow your lawn with an electric lawnmower. You know, you can take these actions, but when the city starts supporting those actions, banning plastic bags, for example, as happened here in Boulder, mm -hmm. when the city starts making those actions, it feels like, okay, yes, we're going to make a difference. And then it takes these brave cities to implement some of these things for the state to say, okay, right. well, it's working in the city. Maybe we should try it at the state. And then it takes these states doing it that the federal government can see to say, oh, right. well, this state is doing it. It seems like they tested it out. It's a good plan. So maybe it has some promise to make a federal regulation. So it takes brave people to pave the way mm -hmm. and to move forward. The more individuals that we have can come together and they can start to really push for these collective decisions, which is really helpful. Right. Yes. Surrounding yourself with other people like that makes you feel less depressed. It makes you feel more <laughs> hopeful. And I, you know, I mean, I think that that's an important thing is to be around people who bring you up. You don't want to be around people who bring you down. Right. That's why we have a cat. Exactly. Little S comic relief here. <laughs> I really like to ride my bike. And so I do this bike ride every year called the Iron Horse. And the Iron Horse okay. goes from Durango to Silverton. So it's a 50-mile ride up over two mountain passes. Yeah. It's really fun. That's rough on cars even. <laughs> it is. It's really fun. <laughs> when you get to the top, you can either take a bus down or you can take the train down. And so a few years ago, I took the train down. And I it's always over Memorial Day weekend. And I ended up talking to a lovely family from Missouri. And it was an interesting conversation because <laughs> I knew that they would not necessarily want to believe in what I was saying, but because we were all people and right. could really talk to each other as people, we could understand each other. And so they softened to me and I softened to them. It could have gone where I would have written them off and said, well, you're from Missouri. You're not going to want to hear what I have to say. So that's one one approach that people can have. And that's not a constructive approach. <laughs> They also could have said, oh, you're a climate scientist. You're a global change ecologist, I should say. That's you live hippie, in Boulder. Hippie yeah, stuff. It's some, it's some stuff that I don't agree with. But instead, <laughs> we had a conversation. They asked me what I did. I told them 
one aspect of what I do, which is I study how air pollution affects our plants because plants are really important for food. They're really important for taking carbon out of our atmosphere. But air pollution can hurt plants. It can also hurt people. And so it's really important, actually, that we pay attention to air pollution because it's hurting us. Right. I want to live long. I went to your talk and you told me that I am breathing ground level ozone (laughs) and that it's shortening my life. I want to live long. Exactly. And these people on the train, they they heard that. And so they (laughs) that was how we could start a conversation about all of these topics and we could listen to each other. That's a it's a really important thing to be able to connect. It's really easy to be argumentative and to tell people that they should believe what you believe. But that's not realistic because we are all part of humanity. We're in it together, regardless of whether or not we want to be. We're in it together. And so we need to think like that. Telling people that what they're doing is wrong and is going to ruin the planet is not the way to go. <laughs> I, it, it really isn't. It's, it's so important because I think I, part of the problem is I think people don't want to believe that we're doing this. I personally want to believe and do believe that people are not inherently bad. They don't want to be hurting the climate. They don't want to be hurting our Mm -hmm. ecosystems, but they don't always realize or understand that that's what's happening. And so maybe part of the denial for some people is that there's no way that we could have done that because we didn't want to do that. That wasn't our intention. So it Mm -hmm. couldn't be. So that's one aspect of it. It's not the entire picture. What do you struggle with and what constitutes failure, mistakes, oh. expectations? Like how do you how do you struggle to make those big, big goals happen? Right. This is so this is a hard question. And this is earlier you asked me, did I ever feel <laughs> like I, I couldn't do it or I wasn't gonna make it? And science research is hard yeah. because You have some nebulous idea that you're trying to test. You have to figure out what that idea is exactly and how you're going to test it, how you're going to see this thing. And successes in science are few and far between, actually. Hmm. In the scientific discipline, what we do is we have an idea. We try to write grants to get that idea funded so that we can actually have money to do this research. If we get it funded, that's a success. So that's that is <laughs> that makes you feel like you're on top of the world. Somebody <laughs> thought my research idea was good enough to give me money to go test it. Yeah. And so then you have to go test it. A lot of times the testing fails for some reason. So I in thinking about ground level ozone and how it affects plants, I built a bunch of chambers. I put plants inside the chambers, was blowing air pollution at them. Turns out that my chambers were getting so hot that they were frying the plants. <laughs> and so the ozone didn't matter because the plants were just too hot and dying because they were too hot. So hmm. that's a failure. That sucks. Somebody gave me money and I killed all my plants. That doesn't feel good. <laughs> so, you know, that process is hard, but you have to go through that process in order to learn 
how to do it. I had to, I was blowing air through my chambers, but maybe not enough. So the next year I knew to blow more air through my chambers. My plants weren't as hot. The mm-hmm. ozone levels were high enough that in half of the chambers that I could see the damage. And in the other half of the chambers, I had low ozone concentrations. And so I could compare how the plants were responding in the chambers with high and low ozone levels. And so then we get the data, we have to write it up. And eventually you have to put it all into a document that you've written and send it off for publication. And so then this is another (laughs) hard part because you're writing it up and you're saying, okay, world, I'm putting myself out there. I'm putting my work into this public realm. And then you get reviews from people and they'll say, well, this work is terrible for this reason or that reason. And clearly you don't know what you're talking about for this reason or that reason in ways that not always, but can be very unfair. I had... Somebody comment on one of my papers recently and say, oh, now you're not lying anymore, which is a terrible critique and a terrible criticism that is very personal. You send your paper that you have written to a journal. Yeah. And an editor of a journal says, "Okay, I'm going to send your paper to two reviewers or three reviewers for somebody to read this and tell me and tell you what they think. And if you need to improve the paper in some way. And so then they write their responses to your paper and they send them back to you. And then the editor makes a decision and says, if you can address all these responses, I will publish your paper. Or they say, the reviewers thought your paper doesn't warrant publication in this journal. Go elsewhere. That process sucks. Yeah. (laughs) It sucks. It's a rejection. That is what it is. Scientists are taught to be critical. We are critical of scientific work because we have to be. If we're not critical of the work, it's not going to be at the highest levels. And so this process is meant to help, but sometimes people take it too far and they can get very personal Mm. in their comments. And so that's the part that gets even harder because it's not just a critique of your work to try and make it better. It's a critique of you. And that should not happen, but it does. hard to just keep going but that's what you have to do because Mm -hmm. eventually if you work through it and you learn from those failures you will get to some place and it might not be the exact idea of success as you originally thought it was but you will make some progress and I consider that success and I've had to I really have had to redefine success because there's so many failures that successes (laughs) are very rare and so you have to take advantage of the small things I had a friend in graduate (laughs) school that said we're all so depressed because we there aren't these milestones that we can mark because it takes years to do the scientific research to write and publish a paper. And so you don't have these milestones. There's not things that you can check off your list so easily. It's just this long, nebulous process. And so she started giving out stickers. And I really liked that because she had to define success for herself. Like, what did I get done this week? What did I accomplish? Did I accomplish well, some goal? Did I work <laughs> towards something? What kind of stickers? spider stickers (laughs) just stars you know stickers (laughs) when she defended her phd she actually gave her advisor a whole sticker book um she said every week i would go into lab meeting and we'd go around and decide if we deserved a sticker for the week or not and my advisor always said (laughs) i deserve a sticker 
and never gave a reason why. And she said, now I understand why, because he had to guide me and all of his graduate students in what they were doing. And that is hard work. And that deserves a sticker every single week because, you know, he was guiding us and helping us to succeed. And that's ultimately what an advisor wants for you, right? It's to help you succeed. But it has to guide you through a lot of those failures in order to figure out how to succeed. And that is, it's really hard work, especially when people have different personalities and everything. It's it's a challenge. If you never fail, how are you ever going to learn? I don't know, but it's so easy to get in the downward spiral of negative thoughts. It is. And then how do you come out from it? You have to kick yourself out of it. (laughs) It is. It's a negative spiral that you really could go down. And I mean, I do from time to time. Yeah. But I usually what I try to do is I try to be compassionate with myself and say, okay, this didn't work. I don't feel good. Yes, everything seems terrible. I feel like I'm terrible at all of these things or I'm a terrible person or whatever is going through my brain. Then I say, but what are the good things? Hmm. You know, like what can I look at and grasp on that is positive? What what have I been doing well? What do I love? And that's for me what I try to do to get out of that spiral because that spiral Mm -hmm. is so destructive. Um, And it's so common and people don't talk about it enough. Right. And so then you think you're suffering by yourself. And if you can just... That's where that community comes in. Yes. But even if you have that community, if they don't know that you're doing this to yourself, they can't help you. And so you need to talk about it. In some places, in some communities, it's taboo. And it's so important to talk about because you have to realize that you're not alone and that everybody feels this way at some point in time. And when you talk about it, somebody can help you to realize all of the good things, which is really nice. That's what the River of Suck podcast is for, yeah. where we talk about our feelings, and that's and our part of my own personal and drink tea, and that's part of my own personal therapy. You know, I started talking about this because I think about it, and I started giving talks at fiddle camps and music events about it to help other people, but I got tired of hearing myself talk about it, and it's been way more fun since I started asking other people and listening more. So, you know, what's interesting about you saying about that at fiddle camp, science is safe for me. Mm -hmm. Music is terrifying for me. Oh, right. And that's, it's, (laughs) I love music, but it's part of the reason I think I told you earlier that I'm classically trained. If I have music in front of me, it's okay. I can play it. If I don't have music in front of me, I feel like I'm going to fail and I don't know what to do. And it terrifies me and I totally shut down. And I have definitely been in situations where I have tried to play a fiddle tune on my flute and just started crying because I feel like I'm so bad at it. And that, you know, so for me, that is part of where that fear comes in.
So well, let's keep up that conversation about music and see if we can yeah <laughs> get you off the page at some it's, point. It is terrifying to me. It's terrifying to a lot of people. I mean, it's like that's the thing is mm-hmm. taking chances and taking risks in front of people. Yep. Or even by yourself. Yep. And so for me, science <laughs> is based on fact, whereas music is not. <laughs> and it's it's actually similar to me with art, like painting or drawing, doing something like that to me is also terrifying because it's putting some aspect of my creative self out there to be judged and it's not, you know, again, it's not based on fact. And so that's why science is a little mm. bit safe for me. Whereas, but I also think that the best scientists are actually really creative because they're the ones who can sort of put different pieces together and make these new discoveries. How has playing music influenced your science? Well, <laughs> I think it gives me a creative outlet because it does have that aspect of creativity. It helps my brain sort of take a step back from all of the logical aspects about science and be able to take a step back and think a little more creatively about it. And so it allows that sort of rational part of my brain to release and bring in some of this creative side of my brain. The best scientists, in my opinion, are the scientists who are creative. They're the ones who are going to make the big discoveries and who can think of the interesting questions to ask. That no one else has thought of. Yes. And... There are plenty of amazing scientists who are not creative. They are very solid scientists, but they're not making the discoveries that you need to make Hmm. in order to advance the fields. And so I think that science and music and art and creativity all go hand in hand because you really do have to have, you have to have sort of both aspects. You do need that logical aspect because you need to be able to test things rigorously, but you also need the creativity to be able to think about it from different perspectives. We're nearing the end of our conversation. All right. Or I'll never be able to edit it. <laughs> That's not true. I spend like three days on post-production. For I'm these. sure. I'm sure that post-production takes up like <laughs> a huge amount this, of your this time. Is the, this is the fun part. Yeah. I, I can see. I, I, it's, again, it's, it's like science where you get to like do some fun things and then you have to do all these other tedious things. Yeah. Like when I was in grad school, sitting in a field with an instrument and clamping it onto leaves and waiting for it to equilibrate and then pressing a button to record the value and then taking it to another leaf and clamping it on. Oh, right. <laughs> ah, mind numbing days. Right. But then you get the data and you get to sort of analyze it and think about what it means and do these patterns go together? Do they tell you anything? You know, and that's the fun part. Totally. But yeah, there's a lot of tedium in the middle. If someone is listening and they want to go deeper into the science that you're doing, is there a way they can follow your research? How do we follow along and be part of the journey? So I have a personal website that is still in progress and I have uh, my NCAR website. So if you Mm -hmm. did a Google search for my name and my and NCAR, you would find me very easily. There's also the the talk that you have referenced is mm-hmm. recorded, and it's also on a website, the NCAR Explorer series. Cool. There are also ozone bioindicator gardens. So we talked about the fact that ozone shows up on the surface of leaves. There are those gardens planted throughout the country. People can collect data to help us figure out and understand how severe the ozone injury can be in different places on different plants. So that's another... 
aspect of things that people can do. I am on Twitter now as of Aha. about a month ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I what, still haven't what's, totally... What's, what's your handle? Oh, I... How do we follow you? We don't get to choose them anymore. So I think it's Donica oh. Lombardo 2 or something like that. I am new enough to Twitter that when you sign up now, they assign you a handle. They don't let oh, you really? choose anymore. Okay, yeah. wow. What's your website? Is the link sayable? I don't remember it off the We can look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Let's look it up. Yeah. Is it donicalumbardazzi.weebly.com? Oh, yeah. There you go. What kind of stuff can they find there? So they can find out a little bit more about the ozone-related work that we're doing. And I'm also working a lot on trying to understand how um, food security might change in the future and how we can better manage our agricultural systems to reduce our impact on climate. Projects like that people can find on my website and uh, contact information for how to get in touch with me if you want to know more. NCAR has cool talks, a cool seminar series called the Explorer Series, where they have scientists come and talk to the public about all different aspects of science that's being done at NCAR. And if anybody is really excited about planting a garden in a public space where people can come and collect data, please get in touch. We always love to add more gardens to our network. And who doesn't love plants? Yes. <laughs> they feed us. They give us oxygen. Thank you, plants. They suck the carbon out of the atmosphere. Thank you. We love you. <laughs> well, thank you for being here and opening up about your science and your feelings. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for hosting this wonderful podcast. <laughs> Yay. Well, Yay. for those of you listening and you want to hear more, if you want to hear things that didn't make it to the final episode, you'll be able to access that through the River of Suck swim team, which is at riverofsuck.com. It's also at patreon.com slash Andy Reiner. You can support me and the work I'm doing trying to talk to more people about their feelings. You're talking to people about their fears. Fears. Feelings. Fears. <laughs> <laughs> music you've been hearing was recorded live during the second week of Montana Fiddle Camp and features Joy Adams, Emery Lester, Quinn Bichand, Shane Cook, Eric Turin, and myself, Andy Reiner. My name is Andy Reiner. And I'm Donica Lombardazzi. Till next time, keep swimming. <laughs>